0: All right, well, um, as a student in high school, when um, when I was at the church where I came to faith, uh, there was a, a kid in the youth group who had a car, he had his own car, and um, he was starting to date this girl. He had, I don't know, six or seven dates, and it was kind of becoming some banter among the guys because he was meticulous about his car. And he would always be dressed really nice, waxed his car. He'd show up with flowers for every single one of these first dates. And we were teasing him about it. And Jerry, the youth pastor, and I found this ironic because Jerry did not date and chose not to marry, um, but he gave some wise words of advice to him and all of us. He said, now remember something, how you win them is how you have to keep them. You know, if the first six dates you bring flowers and you don't on the seventh, that's not going to pass. That's not going to fly. But if you understand something, I mean, all of us understand that there's an amount of energy that's required to do that that eventually will diminish. Our expectation is that over time that would change. Um, And maybe we've, we've let other people down or we've been let down in various aspects. And so sometimes I'm afraid what happens is we project that onto God and we think, well, you know, God saved us one way and he's going to complete us a different way. But he doesn't because he's not like us. He's actually incredibly consistent. He doesn't change. And the same way that God wins us is how he keeps us. Um, Dick Kaufman is the executive pastor of Redeemer Church up in New York City, um, where Tim Keller is the senior pastor. And he, Dick, uh, said this this comment that I thought was really interesting because it's so true of most of us. He said, Christians think that we are saved by the gospel, but then we grow by applying biblical principles to every area of our life. Is that how you look at it if you're a believer? I'm saved by the gospel, but now if I want to be sanctified, if I want to grow in that faith, I have to take Bible principles and then apply them to every area of my life. That would be a trade-off That would be you're saved by God's work of grace, but you're sanctified by your own efforts. See, the way God wins us is actually the way he keeps us. It says in Philippians 1.6 that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Not he who began a good work in you will hand you the baton and then you will carry it on to completion. He is going to complete it. He is doing that work in your life. So my main point this morning is this. You never graduate from grace. You never graduate from grace. The same grace that saves you is the same grace that's going to sanctify you. It's going to be God's work in you all the way along. Now, this isn't me saying this. This is the scriptures. Now, let's go to Galatians chapter 3. It's page 973 in the Pew Bible if you want to follow along. Um, And I'm going to just look at what Paul says here. As you get to page 973, let me remind you something that J.I. Packer said about this letter. He said, this is the uh, most violent piece of polemic writing in the New Testament. Paul's language is starting to get interesting here. It's one of the few times you can appropriately say the word stupid in church. Oh, stupid Galatians, or oh, foolish Galatians, the word could be translated either way. Oh, stupid Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who put a spell over you? What happened? You started out by grace, and now you're going by works. You've changed Now, I explained to you before that the reason of the change was some so-called missionaries came behind Paul and said, that's great that you've received Christ as the Messiah. Now you have to become a Jew. You have to get circumcised. You have to follow all the laws of the Mosaic way, and you have to become a Jew as well as a Christian. In other words, it's Jesus plus something else, or else you can't be saved. And Paul, I mean, that's not like a minor thing. Paul sees that as so central that it's not Christian anymore. It's now a different religion. In fact, any time the religion that someone is looking at is Jesus plus something, it's not Christianity. It's a different religion. Jesus died for your sins. If there was something else that could in any way help you, save you, uh, improve on you, then why did he have to die? Why don't you just go to that other thing? Christ died for our sins. That's so central. Have you been duped by a Jesus plus philosophy? I mean, think personally about your life. Do you think okay, I'm saved by grace, but then I have to do all this other stuff to become worthy of it. I have to clean up my act now. I have to become a good Christian. Here's a litmus test for you. The word should or ought. If you find yourself saying, oh, I really ought to fill in the blank. I really should read the Bible more. I really should do more for the poor. I really should go to church every Sunday. I should fill in the blank. If you find yourself saying I should or ought, you're going down the road of works righteousness. What you want to say is, I really want to read the Bible. I really want more of you, God. I really want to become like Christ. I wish, Lord, that I could be more like so-and-so that I admire. Help me do that. See the difference? It's a subtlety, but it's huge. And it's so big that the Apostle Paul is hitting it with very graphic language. Stupid. It's stupid to go the other way. Don't do it. Foolish Galatians, he says. Now, I've mentioned good things like, you know, worship and giving and serving and reading the Bible. Those are good things. But we also have what Tim Keller calls functional saviors. Anytime I look to something other than Christ to complete me, I've now found a functional savior. So whether it's a material thing I have to own, whether it's an experience I have to have, um, uh, success in one of my endeavors, or some other relationship, whatever it might be, am I supplying a functional Savior for the role that only Christ can provide as the true Savior? It's worth asking ourselves that question. Now, Paul asks, if you count the question marks in this little section, there's probably seven of them. I didn't count them up. I'm going to group them into five basic groupings here and see what he says, starting with the first one. Who has bewitched you? These are all rhetorical questions or they're questions that very quickly lead into an answer. Who has bewitched you? Now, it it might have been the Judaizers, but I think they were more of an instrument because Paul uses the singular pronoun who, not which group of people has bewitched you, but who individually has done this? I think he's alluding to the devil. I think the devil is the one who has bewitched or cast a spell over this people because they've walked away from the best deal that's ever been offered to humanity. Here's the deal. God is holy and you're not, and you are under judgment. And one day you're going to come into his holiness and you will not be able to stand. But here's the deal. I'll go and die for you on a cross, and I will offer you new life, I will put my spirit in you, I will cause you to walk in my ways, and you will experience incredible peace, and in that glorious day when you stand before me, I'm going to look at you and see you as righteous. Or you can try and do it in your own effort. That's the deal. All it requires is trusting Christ, believing in him. The only way that they would walk away from that deal is if someone really did cast a spell over them. And that's what really happened. Someone cast a spell over them. So he says, who has bewitched you? And then if you look at um, verse one, it says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, keep in mind, Galatia is up in modern day Turkey. So they weren't down in Jerusalem on Mount Calvary. They didn't literally see him be crucified. But what he's referring to here is good preaching. You know, if somebody is clear, if somebody's good at painting a mental picture, it's almost as if you see it. I remember being in that youth group when I was in high school and Jerry would open the scriptures just like I'm trying to do now and he would, we'd read them and then he'd explain it to us. And it was like one of those kid books, you know, I, I don't, I'll see if I can do it. Like you open the book and then the picture opens up like this and you're like, oh, and then it folds back down, you know? It's like as, as he starts to explain the love of God and who Jesus was and how he ministered to the common people and he, he was loved by all and he did all these miracles and then he goes to Jerusalem and then he goes on the cross. It's like the picture like, that, you can see it. You can close your eyes, and you can see him on that cross and his deep love for us. It was before your eyes that Christ was portrayed, publicly portrayed as crucified. You saw it. Who stole that away from you? Who stole it away? It's the best deal that's ever been offered to humanity, and you know it, and you accepted it, and then you traded it later. So Paul's coming down on them, and he's saying, reconsider. His second question in verse 2 is this. Let me ask you only this Paul says did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith Now keep in mind he's speaking to Christians he's pe- speaking to people who have professed faith in Christ and they've received the holy spirit and his his appeal here is to experience when you experience the holy spirit was that because you did something to get him or because you believed and then he was given as a gift Now the rhetorical question here the answer is it was because you believed You didn't earn it. You couldn't do anything. You didn't buy it. In fact, in Acts, someone tries to buy it, and Peter pronounces a curse on them. A a magician tries to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit with money. It doesn't work. It doesn't go well for that person. So the answer is, it was by faith. Now if you're a Christian, you get what this is talking about. Now I can't tell you specifically what your experience of the Holy Spirit was. I can tell you what mine was, and I know a couple of your stories specifically, but you if you're a Christian, you know the presence of the Holy Spirit, and it, it usually has some common things. One of those is that you feel incredible love. You feel accepted by God. Not just that he offers forgiveness, but that by believing in Christ, you received it and you feel like, I'm forgiven. God actually is accepting me. You feel warmth often. You feel comfort. You feel a peace that surpasses understanding, even in the midst of hard things. You might be going through something really hard and be shocked to go, why do I feel so strangely okay? That's the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, when that happened in your life, did it happen because you believed or because you did something? Okay, everybody, we're going to read through the whole Bible. And when you read every word and get to Revelation, then the Holy Spirit. Then you've bought the Holy Spirit. No, that's not how it works. You hear the gospel and you respond in faith, and then the Holy Spirit comes into your life. And you know it. Sometimes it's very powerful. Sometimes it comes with a radical change of your thoughts, your abilities, even. Sometimes the Lord gives gifts for ministry. And people have all sorts of experiences. You can read about some of them in the book of Acts. You can talk to other people as you get their testimonies. You can read the testimonies of history and see what God has done in people's lives and how they describe the Holy Spirit. But if what I'm talking about right now makes no sense to you, could it be that you're not a Christian? I want you to seriously ask yourself this question. Have I trusted in Christ? Have I heard the good news of that incredible deal of his death for me on the cross? And I said, I want that. I repent of my sins and I ask you to be my Lord. Come into my life, Lord. Have you ever actually prayed that prayer? If you've not, you don't have to wait till I'm even done preaching to do it. You can do it right now. Or come to the prayer teams at communion time or come see me. It's important to make some kind of a profession of faith. I want to invite you to do that. And then you'll receive this gift of the Holy Spirit. And then everything else that I'm talking about and the rest of the Bible will start to make real sense to you in a new way. Also, one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is that he opens up our understanding of God's word. I want that for you. Now, some of you, and I've heard some stories over the last couple of months or even years, you've had a real reawakening of faith. Maybe you were a church kid and you got confirmed when you were a teenager and it didn't mean anything. You've had some kind of experience of the Holy Spirit Because you believed, not because of anything you did. You believed, and your life is different. I'll talk to you a little bit later about confirmation or reaffirming your faith. The bishop's going to be here in August, and we're going to have a little class for that. Maybe that's something that you should do, and have the bishop pray for an increase of the Holy Spirit and make a public profession of this faith and say, I know God now. He came into my life. I've had this experience. I want you to consider that. But see, the question is, how did you receive the Holy Spirit? Was it by works or by faith? and the answer is it was by faith. They all know that. So he's appealing back to their own experience. Verse 3 is his third question. If you look at verse 3, it says, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Meaning by your human effort. Have Have you changed in your approach? You trusted Christ to save you, but now you're trying to trust in your own ability to become holy, to become a person with less and less sin in his or her life? Are you trying to do that in your own power? You know, I'm pretty sure that whenever that day comes where there's a real comparison, I'm not going to go, look at how good of a Christian I was. What it's going to be is I'm going to say, oh my goodness, I can't believe what God did in my life. I say that right now. Heather will bear me witness. I mean, often I'm like, how did this happen? When 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 did this occur? It's amazing what God is doing in us. I'm not doing it. He's doing it. I'm just trying to keep up with what the Holy Spirit is doing, to keep in step with the Holy Spirit, as we call this preaching series. I want to keep in step with what he's doing because he's the one who does it. I'm saved by grace and I'm sanctified by grace. You never graduate from it. You never graduate from grace. In fact, in some ways, I feel like for those of us that have been Christians a long time, we need the reminder of his work to save us. It's not just for people who aren't yet believers. It's believers need to hear this over and over again because otherwise we feel like this is something I have to carry. And Eugene Peterson, the the author and the pastor, um, (laughs) said something that I really liked in his commentary on this. He said, God pours out his love for us. You know, he's pouring out, God loves us. We've, We've heard that. He pours out his love for us. He mercifully accepts us and forgives us. And then we experience this warmth of this relationship with the living God. And he goes, Now, having begun there, what's the next step? What's the next step after love? When you've felt love and you've responded in love or you're in love, what's the right approach? What's the next step? He says, is it cautious mistrust? That's certainly not a good response to someone loving you. Ooh, I better be careful because he might not love me anymore. That's not a good response. What about, what's the next step after faith? I've trusted. Is it Anxious attempts to avoid anything that might displease God. Now I'm going to be on you know, tiptoes, pins and needles, afraid that I'll mess something up. That's not, the, that's not what love's about. That's the wrong approach. Think just humanly. That's not a good thing. He asks another question. What about the next step after grace, receiving an undeserved gift? Is it now cannily bargaining with God so that we can manipulate him for our benefit? Cutting deals. God, I'll do this for you if you'll give me that. What loving person wants to hear that in response? It turns it into a a transaction, some kind of a a barter, an exchange. It cheapens love. Obviously, these are not the right responses. So he's saying, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? No. Verse 4, his next question. He says, did you suffer many things in vain? if indeed it was in vain. That could be experience or it could be endure. That word suffer, the footnote tells you you can translate it a couple different ways. One of the hard parts about trusting Christ is that your value system shifts. Things that used to matter to you don't anymore and people that still care about those old things won't understand your change. And so there's immediately a tension and you could even call it a persecution where you will start to suffer a bit because you're now walking in a different way. And these Galatians did that. They pulled away from their pagan habits and patterns and they were living for God in joy. They were enjoying God and they were living differently and there was a tension, there was a persecution, there was, there was a, a, a clash of value system. And he's saying, you started, did you endure all that for nothing? Now you're just gonna be like them? Again, the answer to a rhetorical question is, no, it wasn't in vain. That was important. And why am I giving up on it? Is it because it's hard? That's a bad, bad reason to walk away from such a good gift. And verse five is kind of like verse two. Verse two says, did you receive the spirit by your works or by faith? Verse five says, it it focuses us more on God. And it says, does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So again, it comes by faith, but now he's focusing on God. Think about how God works. He delights to respond to faith and give you these things. And he goes to the example of Abraham. Abraham, the patriarch, and this is our memory verse, right? The righteous shall live by faith. God said, Abraham, leave the land of your fathers and go to a land I will show you. And right there, he trusted God's promises. And it says, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He simply trusted that God is going to do what he promises to do, and right there, God declared him righteous. That was before circumcision. That was before the law was even given. So it was faith. He believed, and God said, You're now righteous. Abraham still was a sinner. He made a number of bad mistakes. You can read through his story. But the point was look at how God functions. He offers a promise, and those who believe in it, he gives righteousness to. Best deal going. Best deal going. Christ, who is perfect, takes our suffering on the cross, and we deserve it, and instead we get his righteousness. That's how God functions. And he says pretty strongly, there's a curse on those that don't abide by the entire law. So two ways to salvation. One is trust in Christ. The other is obey the law perfectly, all of it perfectly. And unfortunately, every one of us has already broken some part of it, so we've broken the whole thing, so now the curse is on us. But the gospel says, I will take your curse on that cross, Righteous, the righteous shall live by faith. Or if you notice the footnote on our memory verse, it actually says, or the one who by faith is righteous shall live. The word order can be switched around. The concept is what matters. The faith comes first, then the righteousness, then the living. So if you think I have to live a certain way, then I will be righteous enough to have faith and then I'll get faith. You have it backwards. The cart is before the horse. It's not even Christianity anymore. The apostle Paul lays all this out. And it's so important to um, the Reformation that Martin Luther picked this up and he drew a distinction between gospel, which is good news, and law, which is you trying to do it in works. He says, The law says this, do this. The gospel says, Christ has done this. The law says, works of human achievement. The gospel says, faith in Christ's achievement. The law says, it makes demands and then bids obedience. The gospel says, it makes promises and then bids believe. That's the invitation that's before us. Now, after a sermon like this, I'm reluctant to give you anything to do, right? Therefore, go and do all these works. I, um, I'm not going to go there. I, think, I, I do think the gospel bids us to respond, not because we should, but because we want to. So here's, here's a, a soft pitch. How about that? This is the 4th of July week. We're going to celebrate freedom, right? Right? Every time in this next week, you think about freedom and the freedoms that we have. Think about the freedom you have in Christ. Not just free to be saved, but free to be sanctified. All things are permissible for you. Not all things are beneficial, but all are permissible. Take that yoke of trying to earn anything from God off and just simply say thank you. Let me close with this. This is, um, again, I've, I've I've read this to you before, but this is a paraphrase of Matthew 11, 28, and 29, again by Eugene Peterson. It's from the message. And it's so, it cuts so much to the heart of our inner desire to earn. He says, Are you tired? These are the words of Jesus. Are you worn out? Are you burned out on a religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I will show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you, says Jesus. You never graduate from grace. God who began the good work in you is going to carry it on to completion. So just walk with his spirit. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your love for us and how persistent you are and consistent that, Lord, you win us and keep us both the same way. Help us understand places where we're striving and it's killing us. Lord, for any in here who've never trusted you, give the gift of faith that they might experience that gift of your Holy Spirit and the peace that surpasses understanding. For I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. We invite you now to kneel